Hello and welcome to Inside Maine. This is Angus King, and we're always talking about issues that are of interest to Maine and across the country, and this this time is no exception. Uh, we're talking about the problem of inflation, and it's no joke. It's <clears throat> serious, and particularly we're seeing it at the gas pump, at the grocery store, uh, in rentals, and it is a serious problem that's affecting people throughout Maine and, and the country. Uh, I'm going to have two guests today. The first is Dana Connors, who's the president of the Maine State Chamber of Commerce and uh, has his ear to the ground when it comes to business in Maine. And then later, we're going to be talking to an economist uh, from uh, the University of Maine to talk about some of the causes and backgrounds of inflation and what we can do about it. So uh, let me start by welcoming uh, Dana Connors. Dana, it's always a, a pleasure to talk. You and I have been having these conversations, I'm afraid, <laughs> for something like 35 years, and but neither of us are any older than we were back in the no, uh, I know in the eighties. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's listen, true. Dave, it's what, funny how that happens, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. What about inflation is the biggest problem that you're hearing from the business community? Oh, inflation has so many different aspects to it, you, and you name some of them. I mean, um, I, I, let, let me back up a second. I am surprised. I mean, I've heard you say it, and I happen to agree with that 100%, is that the two biggest issues we face today in Maine um, actually is a workforce, but it's also inflation. And um, they're both issues that haunt the business community and our economy, but in spite of all of that, there is an air of optimism in Maine by the business community. Uh, maybe it speaks to really the resilience of Maine people and businesses. Maybe it speaks to they've been through this for two years. We're seeing the other side of it. But there is that degree of optimism, which is great. And and the facts, the statistics kind of bear that out, too, whether it's our rate of growth as it relates to GDP, um, there's a number of factors that go into that position, but I think when it comes to inflation, I think that there's a level of uncertainty as to how much longer and how deep is it going to go. And we, we recognize that, like I said at the outset, is is such a multifaceted aspect. You mentioned it. Energy, every time you go to the gas pump or you provide oil for your home, um, whether it's your electric bill, I mean, it, it gets you just about in every aspect, but you've also got food prices, you've got housing, you've got the supply chain issue, you've got geopolitical, the war in Ukraine, plus the pandemic in China. It's, it surrounds us all. So it's, it's a pleasant surprise when I hear our business community acknowledge that. They're all doing something about it. Yep, we, we acknowledge the problem is that that air of optimism is really very promising. So I, I, I don't want to dwell totally on the problem, but the problem is real. It's there and people are feeling it and they're doing all that they can to not only survive, but to succeed. And I commend well, uh, them for that. I, I think you make a really important point, And that is before the inflation really took hold three or four months ago, we were having some of the most amazing economic progress we've had in 30 or 40 years, the highest rate of GDP growth, lowest unemployment. Uh, unemployment had fallen into the 3% range, which is, you know, when I was governor, we, that was that was a, a goal uh, mm -hmm. to, to try to get it down there. We, we got down pretty low. But anyway, uh, things were going quite well. And ironically, part of the inflation issue 
relates back to the speed of the of the growth. One of the problems that for gasoline, for example, is during the pandemic, the demand for, for oil and, and gas fell dramatically. I mean, I've seen it on the graph. It just, yep. the bottom fell out. And at one point, oil was selling, you know, for $10 a barrel. And then yes. all of a sudden, uh, not, not all of a sudden, but the, the, the pandemic economic decline, if you look at it on a graph, is a V. The, the, the bottom fell out, unemployment went up, GDP went down, everything. And then it came yeah. right back up again in literally about 14 months. And the oil companies, for example, stopped drilling and producing when the, when the market fell apart. And they haven't come back to the level of production. And yet demand has increased. So ironically, it was the speed of the, of the recovery that I think in part uh, stimulated the, the, uh, the inflation that we're seeing. Of course, the pandemic, as you mentioned, supply chain, sh international shipping, where a container used to cost $2,000 and now it's five uh, and, and those kind of things. The thing I've noticed, Dana, and you've mentioned this, is we really don't have an inflation. We have many inflations. We have, and each one has a different uh, set of causes and a different set of solutions. There's no one solution to this because, you know, the, the problem in supply chain is very different from the problem at the gas pump, for example. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that is part of the dilemma that both the challenge and the difficulty in trying to get our arms around it to move forward is that everyone has a little different aspect to it and some are outside our reach. You know, when you think of the issue currently with COVID uh, spread in China, that's an issue that really means being vaccinated and taking control of it. And when the war and Putin's war in Ukraine, as we refer to it, um, that affects us. And those are things that even though, and I've heard you speak to this a number of times, we supply them the type of weapons and tools that they need and the country and the world is is behind them, it still has that impact and it's hard to control. But you can also look at you can look at energy, you can look at supply chain, all the things you say have have stated have a little different aspect to them. And you know, one of the things that you mentioned reminds me of something I, I read recently that the three primary reasons uh, for a situation like we're in is increase in money supply, decrease in production of goods and services, and yet an increase in global demand for goods and services. So they all kind of, in this case, play out, and particularly to that that particular thesis, if or if you would. Well, I, I got to tell you, I think those of us in the in the political business have have in a sense created a problem for ourselves. I mean, I get mail in the office, what are you going to do about gas prices? And, uh, you know, if you stopped and did a poll on the street in Maine, I suspect you'd find a lot of people that blame gas prices on Joe Biden. And uh, I, I remember one morning as governor waking up, it was a beautiful, beautiful day and nice weather and warm. And I turned to Mary and said, isn't this a wonderful day that I've brought to Maine? I brought this weather. Yep. And she said, what the hell are you talking about? And I said, well, I get blamed for things I don't have any control over. I may as well take credit for some things I don't have any control That's over. True. The truth is neither senators nor presidents have much of anything to do with, with gas prices. 
because gas prices depend on oil prices and oil prices are set on the worldwide market. I did a little yep. research the other night, Dana, just because I was hearing people complain and blaming it all on Joe Biden. It turns out there are 105 countries in the world today whose gasoline prices in dollars per gallon are higher than ours, including yeah. the UK, France, Germany, Japan, South Korea, uh, Brazil, uh, you name it. And 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 uh, my comment to my staff was, boy, that Joe Biden really gets around uh, if he's <laughs> at, at fault for gas prices. But the truth is, it's, it's, it, it, there's very little a president can do about gas prices one way or another. He's released oil from the strategic petroleum reserve to try to increase supply a little bit. But a lot of it is in the is the hands of the oil companies and whether they want to whether they want to invest in the in the uh, in, in uh, producing. Yeah. And I think we all come to grips with that fact when you think of the issues from baby formula to food to to uh, oil production, gas, energy production. That's really what you, what you said a moment ago. It's that B curve, and when when the demand was low, they stopped their production, and all of a sudden demand increases. So you're back to that same that same position that you described earlier, where it does depend on production. And even though probably Congress and the president gets blamed for a lot of that stuff, I'll turn the coin over and say, you know, when we first realized the the real challenge that the pandemic brought to us that those dollars that kept businesses alive, that Paycheck Protection Program, yes, those trillions of dollars that got added certainly play into a problem in the future, but at the same time, they saved our economy in so many different ways that while we talk so much about our problems, I have to say that a lot of credit goes to the action that was taken in the time of need to supply those because there's a lot of publicity around today about the infrastructure plan that's starting to come to bear and that what that means for Maine. I will also add this, is that to dwell on the positive for here for a moment, that we've seen in this pandemic a whole new appreciation for Maine, both in terms of, you know, last year we had something like 7.9, uh, I think it was trillion dollars, I'm, I'm sorry, billion dollars that were spent by tourists in our state. That meant a lot of people came to our state to visit, and those people found Maine to be pretty desirable to the point that when the pandemic hit, we have seen evidence of, of a growth. This is the first well, time in a long time that our births exceeded death. And that's pretty well, significant for us. Well, Dana, I just I just looked at that data, and every county in Maine, except Aroostook, I hate to tell you, every county in Maine last year gained population almost entirely from in-migration from other states. We had yep. some migration from other countries, but most of it was people coming from the Midwest and the East Coast who came to Maine. And again, to an indication of how this is all related to each other, that's one of the reasons our housing prices are so high, is that a lot of people came here and got sure. into the housing market. It's a, as you say, it's one of the first times Maine has gained population. And by the way, were it not for those in migrants, we'd have lost population. Every county, in terms of births and deaths, was a lost population. But when you add the people that moved in, uh, we gained. But those gains came at the price of pressure on 
on the housing market and uh, higher housing prices, higher rent. So that's a good example. I mean, I, I, I'm not uh, trying to make excuses. I mean, this, it's a very real problem. But on the other hand, it's a it's a it's a result in, in large measure, I think, of people coming here during the pandemic. I couldn't agree more. I, I also, it reminds me of, in addition to the dollars that have been supplied to us by the CARES Act, the uh, America's Rescue Plan, the Infrastructure Plan, it may get some criticism for certain quarters, but again, I repeat myself, that they were lifesavers for means businesses and, um, and for our economy. But we've also seen in Maine uh, an advantage that was very intuitive and that was in 2019, the state, with the help of 1,300 people throughout our, our state, came together to create a 10-year strategic plan. And it predicted that our success would depend on dealing with workforce shortages. In other words, both the attraction and retention, but also innovation. Workforce, everybody can see, feel, believe, and understand. And, and our Higher Ed and the Maine Spark program have done a marvelous job to keep our eye on its importance and to do something about it. But it's a journey as well. It's not a quick fix. But the other one that I think we've come to realize its impact, and, and that is innovation. 50% of growth in our economy, depend, our GDP, depends on new ideas, new ways, new products, using technology and that type of thing. And that same plan called for, for us to be successful going forward. And mind you, it was before the pandemic that we need to invest in things like childcare, broadband, housing, transportation. And you look at how that was a companion piece to what you've been able to provide us at the state of Maine. It, it was more than intuitive. It was a God's gift to us because it worked together so effectively. You know, you mentioned childcare. I mean, the reality is that a lot of the people that aren't back in the workforce are women, and yes. uh, or single parents. And if they don't have childcare, they can't they can't come to work. I mean, in many cases, childcare is as much infrastructure to enable you to work as the highway is that you drive on to yes. get there. I didn't really realize that until recently, and in, in thinking this through. But and that's why. I think trying to do something on childcare is, is we're, we're going to just we're going to have to do that if we want people back in the workforce. I agree, and as a matter of fact, the legislature in this session focused on those items that I mentioned. They started on a road forward when it came to housing, childcare, um, obviously with the help you've you've established uh, in Washington for broadband. We are in a far far better position. It was just a couple of years ago when we were heralding ourselves because we got 15 million. Now, with the latest accounting, we could have close to 500 million, and you've got a connectivity authority that is really going about the job to really implement that to reach those parts of our state that is not connected. And when you think of our economy today, the vital role it plays is without question. Well, so. you know, I've always, going back to, you know, back at the turn of the century, that sounds funny, but, you know, 20, 25 years ago, uh, yeah. my vision always was that Maine could be a place where people could come to, to live because it's a great place to live and still work wherever they wanted, but they had to have a broadband connection. So this yeah. is something I've been chasing for 20 years. And finally, uh, the stars aligned last year. And as you say, we're 
there's enough money coming to Maine to pretty much wire the whole state and also yep, to make it affordable. That. And yeah. uh, that's going to open up opportunities for the small towns, uh, for people to, to live there, seniors for telehealth, kids <clears> access <throat> to school. Uh, I, I think for particularly for a rural state like Maine, uh, it's going to make a real difference. You you have somebody who, you know, is an engineer but likes to hunt and fish. He or she now can live in Dover Foxcroft and practice their profession online and uh, be in uh, hunting and fishing heaven. So that's what I think is going to be part of the future. But we've gotten off the off the subject of inflation. I One of the problems I worry about, Dana, is that the only instrument down here that people think of when it comes to inflation is the Fed. And the only tool the Fed has is interest rates. And that's kind of a blunt instrument. Uh, mm -hmm. Raising interest rates is going to dampen the economy. There's a danger of pushing us from inflation into a recession. And I think Congress has a role. And, and, and that's where, you know, I'm hoping we're going to be able to, to make some progress on some of these supply chain things on uh, uh, trying to clean up some of the regulatory problems that slow things down. And frankly, industry like the oil and gas industry, they, they've got to step up and, and uh, start producing. I fear that maybe they're enjoying these high prices and, and uh, want to keep them that way. And that's, uh, that's, that's got we, we got to get through that. Well, I, you know, it doesn't get a lot of attention, but from my point of view, I think you all are doing that. I mean, I read, again, it may not make the headlines, but I read regularly how you're putting the pressure on oil companies. You're putting the pressure on different aspects of our economy in, in ways to increase production. And isn't that really fundamentally, if we're going to, you know, this seems to be as much as perhaps you can't speak of an inflation situation without recognizing both demand and supply. But when you think of our problems today in terms of inflation, it's probably more the supply side that we're not getting that production that we need. And, and I would say that you are keeping the pressure on. And I think to continue to do that will show that, that uh, Congress is doing something. The big thing is to get the attention that it deserves when uh, it seems that the headlines are capture other aspects that uh, well, may not show. And I gotta, one thing we, we, we need to touch on is electricity. And here's yes. the problem, Dana. Uh, 20 years ago, our electricity came from a whole lot of different sources. Uh, yep. We had an oil plant down at Cousins Island. We had hydro and biomass and uh, you know different sources. Now, over 60% of the electricity in New England and Maine comes from natural gas. And a year and a half ago, natural gas was about $2.50 a million BTUs. Now it's $8, $8. It's almost quadrupled. Yeah. And that's what's killing us in electricity. And again, I guess the lesson we keep learning over and over and over again is you want, you want a diverse set of energy sources, not just one, because uh, we're now captive to the price of natural gas over which we have zero control. It's it's set in, you know, in Houston or, or somewhere. It sure as hell isn't set in Portland. And we're, we're price takers. The other thing I got to get off my chest is it really worries me because you hear, you've heard of LNG, which is liquefied natural gas, which we're now exporting in a big way, which we never did mm -hmm. before. Five years ago, it was zero. Now it's 10 or 15% of our total production. 
if we start exporting in a big way, that's going to affect the domestic price. Our prices Absolutely. are going to go up. Again, it's supply and demand. If supply diminishes, yep. uh, we're, we're, we're at the end of the pipeline. Yeah, the one thing we're seeing here in Maine, I mean, two points. One is, is kind of a, a problem for transmission and distribution companies like Central Maine Power and Versant. They're, when people get their electrical bill, they what they see is a bill with CMP or Versant on it when, in fact, it's the generating aspects of it. And it as much attention you try to bring to that, it it falls some too often on deaf ears. But the other thing I will say that this has caused a real push for renewable energy. There is no question that it's heightened um, the expectation and the promise it brings. The problem is that you can't get it soon enough to deal with the immediate crisis. It's going to take a while to develop it in ways that really meet the demand. And the difference between a renewable project, whether it's hydro or or solar or wind, is once you invest in the in the equipment, there's no fuel cost. You're then exactly. insulated from the ups and downs of the of the fossil fuel mm -hmm. market, and that's a you know we, we know about the environmental benefits, but that's a uh, that's a an economic benefit. So uh, I've always argued that you know different sources are like an insurance policy, uh, and uh, if if we're dependent. As we are, as I said, 60% is, is natural gas. Uh, that spells trouble. And, and we're going to now, you know, we could get into a long discussion. We need a way to store that 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 solar energy or the wind energy. But uh, we've, we've this natural gas thing is a real concern to me. And I'm afraid it can go even higher if we allow this unlimited export. We're exporting our economic advantage as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I, I also agree with that. I think that, you know, what we're finding is exactly that. And it goes back to our, our almost our opening comments in that, you know, the the pandemic brought some real disruptive um, situation for our businesses in, in Maine. And they survived it. We've had the inflation, the workforce, people are working through it. Their companies are making adjustments to accommodate it. But it's that uncertainty of, what lies ahead in the inflation, and I'm encouraged when it comes to workforce, we're, we're doing something about that. Sure. It'll take a while, but we're doing something about it. But that issue of inflation is one that's got people, even those optimistic and working towards the promise, uh, saying to themselves, you know, when is this gonna start to turn around? Because those are the, those are the issues that will really uh, cause an even further disruption that we've managed to put behind well, us, that being the gas, pandemic. Gas prices were coming up before Ukraine, but after Ukraine, they yep. went up even further. And this mm -hmm. summer, as we move into the summer driving season, demand is going to go up further. And that means I'm afraid prices, they, they seem to be going up 10 cents a day over the weekend. I got to fill up and it was, you know, four, four sixty nine, I think, and it's headed, headed to four seventy nine, five bucks. And that's, that's, that's unacceptable. Uh, we just have to keep plugging away, but uh, we're looking at all kinds of, of, uh, of solutions. But I, I want to come back to the beginning. I'm, I'm glad to hear that the business community in Maine is keeping its head up and, and uh, moving forward. The workforce, of course, is a huge challenge, uh, but they're, they're, uh, they're, they're working through that. Businesses are putting in child care centers, for example, and, and, uh, yep. <clears throat> and those kinds of things to, to attract and hold the workers. So uh, 
Well, I, and I think that speaks the truth in more ways than one. I mean, Mainers, uh, we've all known, have never had it really easy. We've been blessed to have a quality of life that's hard to duplicate at any in any um, measure of the term. But truth of the matter is, we have struggled before, and we know we'll struggle again, but we make it work, and we've seen it in the pandemic, and we've seen it in the economy. And I think people accept change and problems as part of life, and we'll get through That's it. We we'll do. be better and learn from it. Well, yep. Dan, I want to thank you for this conversation, but I especially want to thank you for your work at the Chamber. I know you were the original first uh, direct of, uh, president of the main chamber going back to the to the Joshua Chamberlain administration, and I want to thank you. <laughs> no, yeah, I, no, I, I, I couldn't I, you, wait for You've that really dinner. done a great yeah. job, Dana, and, and you've been a tremendous voice for Maine business, and and uh, I know you're you're a stage till the end of the year, so I'm not going to say goodbye at this point, but I do want oh, to please thank don't. you again yeah. for the work you've done. No, and you're, you're very kind in your thoughts, and uh, you are a friend, and those comments show it. People have been very kind, and... Uh, and uh, warm in your comments, and I deeply appreciate it. Just as well, you said, it's been a pleasure to serve. Let's let's keep in touch, and you know, you you never have to hesitate to let me know when I can, when I can lend a hand somewhere along the line. You know it, my friend. Thanks. Take Thank care. you. Bye bye. See you, buddy. Bye bye. This is Senator Angus King. You're listening to Inside Maine. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Inside Maine. This is Angus King. We just had a great discussion with Dana Connors, the president of the Maine State Chamber of Commerce, who's been in that job for something like 25 or 30 years. Great guy, very knowledgeable about the Maine business community, former uh, commissioner of transportation in Maine, uh, by the way. Our next guest is Travis Blackmer, who's a member of the faculty at the University of Maine uh, up in Orono. He teaches about economics and macroeconomics, which is the, the big picture, as opposed to household or a single business. And uh, I wanted to get him into this conversation about inflation. Uh, Travis, uh, talk to me about inflation. I start from the theory that really we what we're suffering from now is a series of different inflationary impacts in things like gasoline, rent, food, uh, transportation, all of these different things. And most of them have different causes, although they're interrelated. But give us the give us a economics 101 on inflation. Yeah. And thank you so much for having me on your podcast, Senator King. Um, you are correct. The world is uh, many, many moving parts. Uh, the many inflations, you know, that's an interesting thesis. And I, I think you're spot on there. Um, I want to back up and say, you know, what inflation is. Inflation is a term a lot like Googling, um, where, you know, when you use a search engine, people say I'm Googling. You know, we're talking about changes in prices and specifically changes in the consumer price index is what you're seeing on the news, that CPI. Um, and inflation is when prices are rising, and that just so happens to be what's the norm. And so we just call it inflation. Um, but prices could rise, fall, or stay the same. And we're seeing it um, in many areas, in many sectors. We had broad inflation um, prior to uh, Russia invading Ukraine. Um, we had, um, I actually lament that in 2020 and 2021 early when I was teaching principles of macroeconomics, I told my student how disappointing it was inflation was being boring when 
output and unemployment were, were jostling around. And I, I'm eating my words right now for uh, wishing things weren't so boring with inflation. Um, but you're correct. And we're seeing it um, at an annualized rate now or at a, a rolling 12 month rate of over 8%. Um, that matters too, because they typically just say the inflation rate is what 8.3% for the most recent report we got. Um, what they should really say is that the rate of changes in the consumer price index for the last 12 months is 8.3%. Um, you know, we've seen months have higher and lower levels. If you just look at single months, you know, March, which had uh, a lot of energy crisis uh, inflation was up around an annualized rate of 16%. This last month was lower at around annualized rate of 6%. And um, another little thing they put in there sometimes is things being seasonally adjusted and not seasonally adjusted. But right now, um, this rolling 12-month rate of 8.3% nationally is um, it's pretty painful. And it is pervasive across many sectors. Well, one of the let's start with one of the sectors that everybody knows, which is gas prices, gasoline prices. You go to the pump, and one day I, I filled up over the weekend, I think it was something like 469 and then uh, Monday morning it was 479. Um, my what a lot of people uh, everybody wants to blame Joe Biden and wants to blame politicians. But my understanding is that oil is a global commodity. The price of oil is set on the global market and presidents and politicians and governors and even senators don't have much uh, much control over it one way or another. Yeah, and that's a really interesting point. And I think one that if you look at for a six month or two year time span, no one really has much control over oil. It's a huge infrastructural project that, you know, you could debate amongst uh, the many senators in the US whether it should be a private or public matter um, even at all. So uh, when it comes to oil price, I don't mean to beat you, but I was down in the Southwest last week and I filled up at 611 um, in parts of Nevada and that was particularly painful. So we're seeing, um, you know, uh, this increased, um, first of all, need for oil uh, across the world um, pervasively over time. We are luckily in Maine coming out of our more energy intensive time of the year. You know, if this was, if uh, Russia invaded Ukraine in November, uh, we'd be talking a lot about, you know, the fear of people um, having freeze ups and much worse in their homes. And luckily we're coming out of our time when we're really heavy on uh, needing oil, but we still have summer travel uh, we have truckers. Um, diesel uh, is up in the the mid fives nationally, um, and that's something but, that impacts. But fundamentally, everything. isn't it isn't it fundamentally supply and demand? I mean, the demand has gone up since the since the uh, the COVID the COVID recession was very short. It was a V. It, we came back within about fifteen or eighteen months, and production hasn't kept pace with the with the restoration of demand. So prices are up. I mean, even the Congress can't repeal the law of supply and demand. And correct. And you could even see there was pent up demand. Um, last year, even some people still postponed trips. You know, in 2020, you know, traveling was a, a faux pas, you know, a, a medical mystery. How long will this last? And so um, you have people that, like myself, are willing to still go to the Southwest um, and uh, spend $6 on a, a Southwest road trip. Uh, because I had that pent up, you know, I, I deserve this trip or, uh, you know, it's it's one of the commodities that has the most what's called inelastic demand where people don't really respond to price changes that much. And that's because it's so tied into our daily life. I mean, cut back your electricity consumption, 25 percent. It's pretty hard. Cut back your gas mileage, 25 uh, percent, nearly impossible for most people. 
Well, I, I got to say, you know, I talk to a lot of people in Maine, and I, and I have to say that I'm sure a lot of people listening are saying, no, it's Joe Biden's fault. Can you can you respond to that? Uh, I don't know if I'd have a great answer for that being anyone's fault. I do like to highlight in my class, and I bring up charts of, um, for instance, output. And, uh, you know, I put up uh, several different red-blue charts where you look at who's the president, who's the president of the Senate, Who's the, the, who's the head of uh, Congress right now or who has the majority? And um, these things all fluctuate. And so it's, a, I'd say, a little bit more of a group effort than one person and a lot more of external forces right now. I mean, you just can't fight with the fact that a lot of the world is trying to shut off the spigot to the, uh, one of the largest producers of energy in the world all at once and all competing for uh, the remaining energy markets, which we happen to be a, a part of producing. Um, but yeah, it's really hard when you're competing with so many, so much demand, um, and and uh, actually a shrinking supply of who we're willing to buy uh, oil and gas from. Well, and the same thing has gone for natural gas and and uh, electric bills in Maine are way up. I hear a lot about that, and I know about it myself. I pay them, uh, but we we're we're very dependent. A lot of people don't realize sixty percent of our electricity in in New England and in Maine comes from natural gas and natural gas prices have almost tripled in the last uh, just in the last six months. Yeah. And if you want a, a scary piece to that, I mean, one of the most common natural gas byproducts is um, uh, fertilizer, synthetic fertilizers. And so we haven't hit the growing season yet in Maine and uh, parts of the world have started to hit that. But um, you should see uh, expect to see those supply chain costs of, you know, natural gas being higher. Well, um, oh, I, urea, and uh, I forget the other one that's a, a, the common byproduct of natural gas. Um, that will be something that farmers across the country and in Maine that use those products uh, to help grow the food that we all eat, uh, we'll start seeing that as well soon. With prices. Well, I, I think that's a perfect example of, of how complicated this is because uh, natural gas is up because, uh, uh, as you say, Russia is one of the largest, I think maybe the first or second largest natural gas producer. We're trying to help out the Europeans by sending them liquefied natural gas, which diminishes the supply here, which makes makes natural gas prices go up here. That in turn makes fertilizer prices go up, which makes is going to make food prices go up. And and I think that's as I sort of run through all this, it, it's there there are all these uh, connections that and each to deal with each different problem requires a different set of solutions. It seems to me. Yeah, and you know that's just one of the pieces that's going to hurt food. I mean, think of you know right now about ten percent of the U.S. is in what's called an exceptional drought. Um, that's not great. Uh, machinery on back order. You know, we're short on semiconductors, so whether it be tractors um, or other uh, farm equipment, um, you know, we need diesel to get the food from places to end users. Um, you know, we already hit the diesel crunch at over five fifty a, a gallon. It's going to be um, a, a very complex problem, and, and you can't just tackle it with, you know, one sweeping, you know, signing of the pen, I would assume. This is a very multifaceted issue um, well, on just and, food or and, energy. And one of the problems is uh, the, the, the politicians have essentially punted inflation policy to the Fed, to the Federal Reserve, and the only tool the Federal Reserve really has is interest rates, and that's kind of a blunt instrument. Uh, they can slow the economy down, but the danger is we'll tip into a, a recession. Yeah, you know, I the 
the tools of the Fed are something I just talked about maybe a month ago or so with my principles of macroeconomics class, and they 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 have um, a couple tools. One of them being the interest rate, and you know mortgage rates track with that. Um, we just saw that the monthly mortgage rate or the monthly mortgage rates went from about three point one percent for a thirty year up to about five point four percent recently. That's um, a huge. That's a huge change. You know, interestingly enough, so I, I am a, a student of the moment at times. And so I went and looked and, uh, you know, that's not so different than, for instance, the 1990s. Um, but for me, someone who's in my 30s, um, I'd never seen interest rates in my conscious life be up in the, the five plus range other than for the short amount of time. Well, uh, right a 2% two percent interest rate on a $200,000 mortgage is $4,000 a year out the door. Yeah, and we're looking at you know five, six, seven uh, percent. I know a lot of the um, uh, inflation in the late '70s and early '80s was cured with essentially making interest rates for a 30-year mortgage go up to around 12, 13, 14 percent. Um, we're not at that point yet, um, but certainly you know we should expect higher than we've uh, at least come accustomed to in the last 10 years uh, mortgage rates um, across the board. Yeah, and but there again, the problem is you're you're bringing inflation under control by essentially strangling the economy by having less credit, less expansion, less home building, uh, uh, less apartment building building. And, and that, here, here again, we meet ourselves coming around the corner. If we have less uh, construction because of higher interest rates, the supply of housing doesn't expand to meet the need and you still have rents and housing costs that are too high. Yeah, and, you know, this idea of, of jacking up interest rates right now, um, you know, last summer, the, the popular term was inflation was uh, transitory. Um, I know the Fed has recently announced that they're going to stop using that term. Um, but the soft landing we were looking for, you know, if you look at the monthly non-adjusted rates for inflation last July, August, September, it looked like they were cooling down. Um, and then October was bad again, November, December were cool. And then the whole start of this year, uh, were pretty catastrophic for anyone that was hoping for a really soft landing without having to uh, raise interest rates abruptly. Uh, and so and as you say, you, and 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 the 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 late late February was when the U Ukraine invasion occurred, and yeah. uh, all of the all of the uh, constraints on Russia's uh, supply of oil oil and gas. Uh, one of the other issues, though, that worries me is uh, concentration of industry. Uh, the fact that there are only four major meat producers in the country. Uh, there used to be uh, something like um, nine airlines, and now there are four major airlines. I mean, that, uh, you know, concentration to me equals potential for for price increases and less, comp less competition. Yeah, you know, I, I heard that that was one of your uh, major interests, so I did a little digging. Um, those four major four... Um, meat producers, Cargill, Tyson, JBS, and National Beef, they own about, depending on the metric, between 60 and 85% of the meat processing in our country. It was about 25% in 1977. And it's not just COVID. You know, if you look back in 2019, um, there was a large plant lost in uh, Holcomb, Kansas to Tyson. JBS had a ransomware attack in 2021. So this is something that, you know, part of being economically resilient is having uh, options, you know, the ability to withstand shocks. And certainly concentration ratios that high where we have, you know, four major producers um, is something that is very risky for our economy. And, and one of the things that I don't know if you've uh, become aware of her, I assume you are, of um, 
concentration ratios in industries is that, uh, you know, Linda Kahn, the FTC chair, uh, may be your champion in that area as FTC has purview over, um, you know, mergers and acquisitions. And I, I just noticed that they were looking for public comment in April about people saying, you know, hey, we're interested in reducing uh, monopoly or market power. Um, we teach in economics, you know, one-on-one principles that, you know, when you do have market power, it does cause a, what's called a deadweight loss. We're losing some mutually beneficial transactions because people with market power can kind of restrict output and increase the price to consumers um, to extract some extra profits. Well, that's exactly what's happening in the oil industry right now. They're they're not drilling. They're not increasing production. They're giving money back to their shareholders with buybacks and, and dividends. Well, that, here I, on the meat side, I was uh, having a sandwich with a group of my colleagues last night, and uh, uh, they're suddenly very interested in a bill that I'm sponsoring uh, with Mike Rounds of South Dakota that will allow meat that is inspected by state inspectors rather than federal inspectors to be sold across state lines. It's not allowed now. And all of a sudden, my colleagues are saying, hey, King, that may be a good idea. That's another that's a way to, to uh, get more more meat into the into the market that doesn't necessarily go through these uh, four big processors. Yeah, and you're talking about things President Biden can do or can't do. Um, one thing he did do was mention beef prices. Um, after 12 straight months of price rises, there was a 2.3 percent drop. I believe it was last December. Or, you know, he, he mentioned it. You know, just briefly in a press conference, press conference, and that that tamped down uh, the meat industry's price increases. So that is something. I mean. You can look at that across the board. You mentioned energy, you know, people not uh, expanding drilling as they're recouping losses from the past. Uh, you know, a really weird one for me, you know, UPS is a uh, supply chain based company. And, uh, you know, we're dealing with supply chain crunches. That's what we hear, um, you know, almost $3 billion in quarter four 2021 profits. Um, that sounds to me like, uh, you know, something where a lack of competition might be allowing for some spaces for companies to pass off some price increases or inflation as uh, ability to make some profits. So that, that is happening across the economy. Yeah. And, and the problem is, if, it, is that, if at that, as that becomes a common practice, then it feeds itself. Correct. And it becomes an inflationary spiral that's very hard to stop because people are sort of assuming higher prices and uh, that, that in, in turn constrains demand. The other problem that we've got is shipping costs. The cost of a container used to be a year or so ago was $2,000 and now it's $5,000. I mean, that, that's, and that of course reflects itself in everything we buy. Yeah. And that was, um, if you dive into the, the quarter one, 2022 GDP report, which showed a slightly falling real GDP. Um, one of the biggest drivers there was imports. Um, imports grew by about 200 billion, something along those lines. And, um, if you look at port activity, you know, rising imports has caused some real issues and delays. For instance, you know, when truckers are waiting at the port and backups, they're not getting paid. They typically get paid on a mileage basis. So that is something that uh, is hurting everyone across the board. Um, these backup at the ports, um, whether it be from international travel or international shipping or from, you know, our domestic infrastructure waiting uh, for activity to happen and then get those trucks on the road so we can have a little bit quicker of a, a fill rate or, or you know, greater amount of fills per year. Well, one more piece of this, and, and it, this is sort of good news, bad news. The good news is there's a labor shortage. The further good news is that means people are getting paid more. Wages are going up uh, pretty much across the board. But then that in itself translates into higher prices for consumers, whether it's at a restaurant or, or at the grocery store. 
Yeah, and you know, one of the things that's scariest about that is if you look at what percentage of someone on the lower on the income bracket, whether they're at or near poverty or in the bottom quartile of their expenses are dependent on activities where there are minimum wage workers involved, it, it's pretty high. Um, so we're talking about this being, you know, a, a kind of regressive, a regressive inflation in that, you know, if it's driving up food prices, energy prices the most, well, those are already things that these people are spending closer to the bare minimum on. It's not like they're substituting Kobe beef for ground chuck or anything like that. You know, they're, they're, you know, trying to meet their basic calorie minimums. They're trying to keep their houses heated to, you know, a level where they're comfortable. And uh, these types of pinches um, uh, do tend to be, or looks like, at least in this case, could be pretty regressive in terms of hurting our most vulnerable the most. Well, I'm tr what I'm trying to do is, is figure out that we've got four or five or six or maybe 10 or 12 different elements of inflation and how to tackle each one and each one has a has a different uh, has a different solution uh, everything from uh, gas prices which I frankly I think the only solution there is for the oil and gas company to start producing more I mean or for us to to cut back on demand but that's unrealistic I mean people need to get to work and they they need to travel and and uh, the one thing we can do is is pay attention to the mileage that our vehicles get. I mean, if you have a 50 mile an hour, 50 mile a gallon vehicle, you're gonna get, you're gonna pay less for gas than if you have a 20 mile per, per gallon vehicle. But but by and large, uh, demand is gonna be what it is. So we need, we need to encourage supply, plus breaking down some of these backlogs at the ports and, and those kinds of things, hiring more workers, uh, training truck drivers, uh, removing obstacles to bringing new people into your business. I mean, uh, we, we've, it's, we've got quite a menu and I'm looking to folks like you to, to help us. Yeah, you mentioned specifically oil. I mean, you know, there are some weird ones, for instance, the, the Jones Act on the books from the 20s about who can transport from US port to US port. I mean, that might be a Band-Aid fix um, where, you know, right now there's a block on allowing international tankers to, for instance, take stuff from, you know, Philadelphia to Texas. Um, that, that's a, that's a stopgap though. That's not a solution. I mean, long-term planning, you know, for refinery capacity in the United States might be something to consider. You know, we are, and to put ourselves in a position, whether it becomes PPE or energy or food, um, that we are vulnerable to the global shifts. And, um, you know, the fact that we don't have much long-term planning for, you know, for instance, oil refinery capacity, um, that might be something to think about, but it, it, it's a much more complicated question of siting on my backyard, environmental impacts. Sure. Um, it, it's well, I, you know, I think if, if something we're 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 learning big time is the danger of concentration, uh, and the best example is is natural gas. Twenty five years ago, there was practically no natural gas in New England, and it came in with through pipelines, and we have a pipeline through Maine that came from Nova Scotia, another one from. Uh, uh, central canada and we we were doing pretty well there because natural gas was so cheap uh but it, it because it was so cheap we didn't develop alternatives and now as i say it's over 60 percent of our electricity and it's tripled in cost it's now it was two something and now it's eight bucks uh a million uh, uh let's see a mcf million cubic feet yeah and uh, and it's 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 killing us people are can't afford their electric bills, but but it's not. This isn't CMP or 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 the old Bangor Hydro. I think it's it's. Uh, I can't remember the name now. now. There you go. But but they're really transporting it, and they have to they have to buy it on the market. And the gas prices are 
Uh, and the thing that worries me is if we start exporting in a big way natural gas through LNG, which we want to do to help the Europeans, for example, that's only going to tighten the supply more in the U.S. unless they drill more. And then the price is going to go up even further. Right now it it's at $8. It has to come from somewhere. You know, that, that, that's the tricky part. And, um, you know, the entire energy portfolio, I guess, is something um, that uh, you as a decision maker, a policy maker, and the rest of Congress gets to kind of decide and pick and choose, you know, the dials between solar and geothermal and nuclear and LNG and oil and, um, you know, what mix is right for the United States. But right. I certainly, you know, it's clear that the mix that we had uh, um well, I don't know if you could, anyone could have foreseen this shock of uh, us cutting off one of the world's largest producers of, of oil and natural gas and getting, you know, 15, 16 other countries to join us. So, um, yeah, this is pretty well, unprecedented, but the, something certainly to factor in the future. The good thing about renewables is once you build them, there's no fuel cost Yeah. for solar or wind or hydro. And, and they're more expensive to build. But once you build them, you don't have to worry about fluctuations in the world a gas market or something. But in any case, we, we've scratched the surface here. But uh, Travis, uh, I really appreciate your sharing your expertise and knowledge with us today. And uh, I hope you'll keep in touch if you come up with any, any good ideas. Uh, and if our listeners have ideas about how to improve uh, some of these uh, inflation problems that we're facing, they are serious. They are deadly serious. They are very serious for Maine families. Uh, I, I'm very worried about next winter if we don't solve some of this problem in terms of heating costs. And of course, driving this summer is going to be uh, expensive. We know that. So thank you for your help. And uh, we're going to we're going to keep at it down here. Senator King, thank you very much for having me. It was my pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for joining us on Inside Maine. Glad you were with us this this week uh, and and uh, enjoyed us for this discussion with Dana Connors and Travis Blackmer. And uh, I want to invite all my friends in Maine, if you've got ideas, suggestions, get in touch with me, king.senate.gov, uh, because uh, this is something that's affecting everyone. And uh, you hired me to help, and that's what I'm going to try to do. Thanks again, Travis, and goodbye to everybody. See you next time on Inside Maine.